I think of places as like chemical reactions, that they, they react differently with us. And just like there are genes that can be dormant and then something happens in your life that activates a genetic response, I think places are, are somewhat like that, that they activate something that's been inert in you. You're listening to Figuring It Out. I'm your host, Lindsay Strauss. When we think about travel, a lot might think that the most important decision is picking where to go and how to fit in everything you want to do into the week. But my guest today, Eric Weiner, has spent his career traveling and studying philosophy and says that's probably the least important decision that you should be worried about. Eric has worked as a foreign correspondent with NPR and written best-selling books such as The Geography of Bliss and Socrates Express and learned some important lessons along the way. In today's episode, the last of season one, we're talking about the decisions that we make in travel and how we can unlock more happiness by resetting our expectations and perspective. I wanted to end the season with this episode because it's a topic close to my heart after traveling to over 30 countries and now living in my fifth. Deciding to travel isn't about seeing the world. It's about deciding who you want to be and having the opportunity to turn these seemingly innocuous decisions of where to travel to into something a little bit more meaningful. We recorded this episode a few days before I left to walk my first Camino de Santiago from Portugal to Spain, which is a famous pilgrimage of hundreds of miles ending in a city called Santiago in northwestern Spain. And I was asking myself that same question of who did I want to be and what changes was I willing to make to get there? Luckily, I had a few tips from Eric along the way. So to kick us off, Here's Eric Weiner on how traveling fundamentally changed how he defined happiness. I had a pretty American definition of happiness, which is we don't stop and actually think about it very often, to be honest. But if we were to ask the average person what what's happiness, you know, these days here and now and in North America, people tend to think of it as pleasurable experiences. They equate happiness and pleasure, happiness and good times. And I I quickly realized, researching the geography of bliss, is this was a ridiculously narrow definition of happiness, that happiness uh, also contains an element of grit and and difficulty and overcoming obstacles. Um, And another big way that my definition changed is I used to think of happiness as something personal, right? We experience our personal happiness. And I was in Bhutan meeting with a man named Karma, uh, which is a pretty cool name. You know, you've done something right in your previous life when you meet a man named Karma, Karma Aura. And we're talking about happiness and Bhutan's policy of gross national happiness. And and he said, Eric, you've used this term a couple of times now, personal happiness. And I, you know, this makes no sense to me. Happiness is not personal. Happiness is relational. And at first I thought he was 100% relational. That's what he said. And at first I thought he was exaggerating. It's not 100%. Maybe it's 50% or 60%. And as I traveled and as I did research and as I digested what he said, I realized that he meant exactly what he said, that happiness is 100% relational, that it is our interactions with, say, with other people, um, with uh, with animals, pets, um, with nature, if you want to get really metaphysical about it, it's with the universe, but it's us in relation to something else. And 
That was a pretty major shift for me in terms of my definition of happiness. If you're like me and wondering how to start that process for yourself, one of the first questions to ask is, what is this trip really for? Is it to connect in this relational way or to disconnect? There's nothing wrong with that impulse of wanting to get away. But when the person says they want to go to Berlin or Cape Town, um, is it really Berlin and Cape Town that they want to experience or do they want to experience a different version of themselves? You know, maybe they're you know, their their day job is just deadening and um, they want to have more invigorating experiences um, or, you know, they, they're they in, indoors all day and they want to experience the outdoors. Um, it's some other aspect of themselves that they want to experience. Um, and seeing the place, Cape Town or uh, Berlin or wherever, is almost kind of secondary. Um, I think, you know, People often, you know, say that they're they're happier on the road, and I do believe that's true. But I don't believe it's the, you know, the energy vortices of a Cape Town or Berlin that's doing it. It's that you're giving yourself permission to be a different person, hopefully a better person, when you're traveling. Do you know what I mean? Is it dependent on the place, or has the entirety of traveling turned you into a new person that you're happy with today? Well, I think of places as like um, chemical reactions that they they react differently with us, and um, you know they sort of just like there are genes that can be dormant, and then something happens in your life that activates a genetic response. I think places are are somewhat like that, that they activate something that's been inert in you, and so mm-hmm. your Lindsay's trip to Berlin, to use that as an example, might activate. Um, something very social in you. Say you've been introverted and you find it to be such a social city or something creative. And it might activate something different in me. Um, but it it's your interaction with the place um, that matters. And, you know, I think a, a lifetime of travel can be cumulative. Um, ideally it is. Because if you just go on a vacation for a week or two or three, um, and you are a different person in those two or three weeks, but you come back and you're same old Lindsay, then kind of what's the point? Um, and it is hard to um, to keep that feeling of travel and to sort of import it or export it in whatever direction you're going to to your everyday life. But that is the whole point. I mean, I've had people, you know, write to me and say, oh, Iceland seems like a happy place. Should I move to Iceland or Bhutan? And I'm like, well, if you really, really want to, you can. People do, but that's not the point of my book. It's not that everyone should, all the unhappy people should move to Iceland. Um, That would just pollute the happiness of Iceland, first of all. And second of all, the idea is that you internalize these places and you you don't even have to visit them. Ideally, you can read about them and internalize a different way of of seeing the world. I really like this idea of kind of flips on its head, this idea of how do you choose how to travel? Because, you know, a lot of people are saying, I've never been to Portugal, so I want to go to Portugal, or I've never been to Iceland, so I want to go there, Mm -hmm. rather than saying, Mm -hmm. I want to feel a certain way. I want to feel more relaxed. Uh, Experience, I would say, more than feeling even. I want to experience another side of me. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the feeling is sort of the end result, I think. (laughs) It's the it's the ends, not the means. Um, but I want to experience 
Um, you know, if you feel your life is too regimented, I want to feel, experience some chaos. Um, so then maybe I'm going to go to, you know, Mumbai and experience that. Um, in fact, talking about this makes me think that, you know, there, there should be a job and maybe we're going to invent it right here of a travel therapist, you know, where mm -hmm. basically you, you know, combining sort of a travel agent and a therapist, you, you go to someone, you meet with them, you, they find out something about you and then they recommend a destination, you know, for you and, or a series, a bunch of destinations you might consider. Um, cause that's, that's not a bad idea. Um, cause you want to, you know, you, you, it's not, it, it can be that, oh, you just need to experience the artwork of the Uffizi in Florence, but it's not the Uffizi and the artwork in Florence. It's you want to experience beauty, I would say. Yes. And there are a number of places you can do that. And uh, there might be places that are even less crowded with tourists in the summer than the Uffizi in Florence. So that is the perfect job. And I would love to sign up <laughs> to do that. Yeah. But I completely agree with it because when I think about travel now, I've really stepped away from this notion of if I'm going to Florence, I need to go see all of these statues and I need to see all the museums because my experience is I am stressed out. I'm in, I'm anxious. I feel FOMO maybe that I'm not visiting everything. And then that experience of travel really takes away from what I'm trying to feel, which is yeah, beauty or relaxation or wonder. It's a shift. You have to be willing to miss things. And willing to um, bear the brunt of people's uh, accusatory looks when you just say to your friend Susie, oh, I just got back from Florence. Oh, you're like, and they're like, oh, my God, how was the Uffizi? And you're like, actually, I didn't go. I just sat in a cafe for a week and thought and read. They'd be like, what are you, crazy? And you have to be willing to accept that um, because ultimately, you know, this FOMO, what, what an expression, fear of missing out is um, – <laughs> It, it's what's the alternative is doing everything, checking every box. And I have, I know people like that who, when they go somewhere, they have to check every box and I can't travel with people like that. It drives me nuts. Um, there's a company that does round the world trips uh, on hmm. private jet. It's pretty cool. And I was asked to give a, a talk on, be a lecturer on one of these trips. And we went around the world on a private jet in 21 days and we saw nine, 10, 11 places. Um, but we saw every place for uh, a day or two. And we could sort of do it because we had our own plane. But uh, I said to the expedition leader, you know, a lot of people, I feel that they, they feel they're rushed. And she said, yeah. Um, and I realized that. But she said it's the marketing and that people, when they sign up for this once-in-a-lifetime trip, they're going to sign up for the one with 11 destinations where they can see Angkor Wat and the Great Barrier Reef and the blah, 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 um, the Taj Mahal. Um, so what, and this is one of the takeaways from the science of happiness, is we're not very good at predicting what will make us happy. We think more places, more destinations will make us happy. But then you take one of these trips and you feel rushed and you can't savor it. And you realize, no, I actually wanted less. So what tips would you give if someone wants to make that change? Okay, right. A couple of things. One is uh, I'm a fan of boring places. Choose a boring destination. Um, don't go to Istanbul. Go to Izmir in Turkey. Um, you know, go to Cleveland. Go go someplace that others consider not a real tourist destination. A, it'll be less crowded, right, with tourists. 
Um, B, whatever you see there will be more of an exploration because there's less of a tourist trail. Um, C, it will require you to uh, flex your travel muscles. I always like to say there are no boring places, only boring travelers. Mm. So it'll force you to see what's what's exciting and beautiful about Cleveland or Izmir. Um, you know, I would also, uh, as a general rule, um, when I'm researching one of my books or even when I'm just traveling for for pleasure, I will figure out how much time I think I need in place X and then we'll always add 20, 25% extra on mm. Um, after I figure out how much time I need, I add that 20, 25%, that extra day or two or three, and depending how long I'm going for, and I never regret that extra time. You, and, and I try to actually stay still for a while. I always look at my itinerary and say, well, when, when do I have time to stay still, to be stationary? It's like the difference between observing, say, city life in, in Manhattan when you're walking with the crowd uh, and moving along uh, versus finding a table at a cafe and you're like, I'm going to sit here for a half hour or an hour, have a coffee, take out my notebook and watch the world go by. I guarantee you'll see more sitting still. So build in stationary time, uh, loitering time, I put it, is, is a, another good tip, I think. Do you think it's, it's helpful to have goals of sort when you're setting out? And let's look at it as mm. you have a vacation versus I want we take a look at the nomadic lifestyle. This is increasing for a small percentage of the population and a younger percent, maybe a younger population. Increasingly, people are saying, well, I want to live somewhere else for four months, six months. Do you want to have a goal at the beginning of that of what do I want to get out of this different experience? That's a tough question. Um, I would say you want to have a goal or a few goals but you have to absolutely, and this is crucial, you have to absolutely be willing to throw away those goals one month into your four-month trip. Um, you know, just to um, to give you an example, you know, the same thing sort of applies when I'm researching my books. My most recent book is called The Socrates Express in Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. And each chapter was a was addressing a, a how-to, thank you, a how-to question uh, that a, a different philosopher wrestles with. So I was just pretty sure when I was doing the chapter on Henry David Thoreau and, and traveling to Concord, Massachusetts, where he lived most of his life, that the question was how to live simply like Thoreau, um, you know, because he had his famous experiment on Walden Pond, living living simply, you know, or how to live alone. Um, and I got there and I had to just throw that away because I realized it was really about seeing, how to see like Thoreau. Uh, was really the question that was central to his life. So I had done all this research on solitude and and on simplicity, and I used a bit of it, but I had to throw a lot of it away. And so likewise, and I think the chapter ended up being better for it. So likewise, you can say, well, I'm going to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico because I want to, you know, learn Spanish. Okay, I'm gonna, I always want to learn a foreign language. Lots of schools there. Maybe you get there and you realize you don't really want to learn Spanish and everyone speaks English there. You want to paint. So you paint. I mean, it's you can't your 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 goals have to be loose guidance and not, you know, not the prison of, you know, a, a definite non-negotiable goal. You have to be willing to throw it away and and find another one. Yeah. And that actually I want to read a, a quote because it makes me think about the difference between facts versus wisdom that you bring up in this book, Socrates Express. 
And the Mm -hmm. quote is, we think we want information and knowledge, but we do not. We want wisdom. Wisdom untangles the facts, makes sense of them, and crucially suggests how best to use them. And what you just said reminds me of that because, you know, we have these ideas of I want to travel to Mexico because I know that they speak Spanish there. I know that they dance there. I know that they have great food. And that sounds great to me. These are things that I want. But we're then preoccupied with that. It's easy to get wrapped up in what you think you're going to experience in a place rather than just being aware and being present and then seeing kind of what direction you can get pulled in. Right. And that's the problem with having a checklist that you're going down, see this, do this, see that, is you don't allow breathing time and thinking time to realize, no, you'd rather be doing something else. And, you know, that's the the conundrum of to plan or not to plan. Um, I think you have to have a rough plan, but like your goals, you have to be willing to to throw it away. And, and, you know, time really is your friend on the road. Um, and, you know, you talked about young people traveling for four months or six months, or if you're Australian, for some reason, it'll be two years because they never seem to take a short trip. Um, and I think there's there's great advantage of that in that time is is our greatest commodity, our greatest luxury. And that, you know, we started off talking about my shift from being a, a serious journalist to being a philosophical travel writer. And really, it's that element of time that makes the difference. Um, you know, working for NPR, I was always under some one deadline pressure or another, and I had to be efficient and I had to, you know, interview people. And it was very transactional. I'd whip out my microphone and ask them a few questions. And once I had knew I had that tape cut, I would then continue with what a friend of mine called the placebo questions, which are, you know, you're being polite, you know what you have, you don't want to just end the interview abruptly. So you'll ask one or two more questions. But really, my mind is out of that room. And I'm thinking, I got to get back to my hotel room or the bureau and splice this story together. Um, now I don't have that pressure. Um, I have a lot more time and, uh, time to think and, and time to experience places on a, on a much deeper level. I think. Do you find yourself still getting caught up in these moments though, where you think, oh, I should be doing this. Cause it's a, that is a choice of saying, I choose to be okay with not doing everything. Yeah. And, and this is something I really wrestle with, to be honest, is there, there's a line, I think it's from the Bible, but don't quote me on that, <laughs> of letting go of things not meant for you. And I keep coming back to that, letting go of things not meant mm, for you. Love that. And if you think about you're you're clutching onto things that are are great. They're they're you know, they're really great and they're very satisfying and, and ego satisfying. But they're not meant for you. And until you stop clutching onto these things not meant for you, you won't be able to pick up what is meant for you. So I keep coming back to that line, letting go of things not meant for you. So, you know, I, I live right here in outskirts of Washington, D.C. A lot of my friends are very much in the political world here. And I'll be honest, I still I see them with, you know, cover stories in the Atlantic about the politics of the day or New York Times, whatever it is. And I and I think, oh, I should be doing that. And then I have to stop myself and say, no, Eric, you're you're let go of things not meant for you. You're doing what you need to be doing, what you were put on this earth to do. And it's a constant struggle. It is getting easier. I am getting more comfortable in my own skin. Um, and I I find myself, you know, you know, the war happened in Ukraine. And 
I have a friend who, like me, is a former foreign correspondent, lives nearby, and and I said, Steve, or you know, what part of you wants to be in Ukraine covering this war? And he said, a hundred percent, he wants to be there. And for me, it's like five or ten percent. I mean, that's not what I want to do anymore. And you know, I'd rather be working on my books on philosophy and spirituality and happiness and and you know, doing what I was meant to do. How did you get to that point? Because a lot of this is removing the ego. And it comes back to what we were talking about before of even when you're traveling to a place and you think you're supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z, but that's your ego talking because that's what gives you status. Yes. Um, but that status is paper thin and people are then not responding to me as Eric Weiner. They're responding me to me as NPR as Eric Weiner. And, right. Uh, right. you know, you, you, you're not a person then you're a person attached to an institution, a, a wonderful prestigious and worthwhile institution, but still an institution. And, um, now I'm not an institution and I hate the word brand, so I'm not going to use the word brand. Um, but I'm just a, a person doing, um, something, but I, I can't really get fired. Um, that's another beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> You know, there are definitely downsides to this life. There is, you know, moments of self-doubt. The projects I work on are huge in between them. You know, you can go weeks or months without an ego hit, and ego hits are important. Um, and I have a lot of unstructured time. And so, you know, you talk about decision-making and, and how to, you know, and how to organize your life. I'm a big fan of paper planners, and I have too many of them because I'm always looking for the perfect one. And, you know, my wife has a big job. She runs a nonprofit here in Washington and she doesn't have a paper planner, doesn't need it. You know, her schedule is on Outlook and everyone in the office can see it. And it's every 15 minutes is scheduled. And, you know, I've got to create that structure um, and create the discipline. And and that's the hard part. And being sort of adrift, um, it's just me and this project and my words and the research and the writing. And, you know, there's not a team of people propping me up. Um, and it, 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 it can be lonely and difficult at times, but I'm doing what I should be doing. Mm. It's amazing. Well, it's definitely something that I would strive for that. I think a lot of us would strive for as well. As you should. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not difficult is not bad. I guess that's, that's my point. Um, you know, there's, there's a wonderful thought experiment um, by the philosopher Robert Nozick where he just says to people, imagine, you know, close your eyes and imagine there's this experience machine, he calls it, that, and you could be hooked up to it and experience nothing but happiness, pure happiness, however you define it, lying there for the rest of your life. Um, now, you're given a choice. Do you want to be hooked up to the experience machine? And when I give talks, and I mention this thought experiment, mm. Nine out of 10 people will say, no, they don't want to be hooked up to the machine. Um, so they want happiness. We want happiness, but we want to earn it. You know, we don't want it given to us. We don't want to just lie there. We want to experience difficulty and, um, and uneasiness and ch overcome challenges and all those things that explain why most people don't want to be hooked up to the experience machine. More from Eric Weiner after this on the trade-offs of traveling, from deciding to go solo to trying local cuisine. 
I mean, I'm a fan of solo traveler, and I think, to be honest, most travel writers are for a couple of reasons. The main reason is that it makes you accessible. Um, If you're traveling in a group, even a group of two, you are bringing your own uh, community (laughs) uh, with you. And you're kind of putting a bubble around you saying, don't talk to us. We're a couple or we're a group of five or we're a group of 10 or a group of 100. Um, If you travel by yourself, you're essentially, you know, wearing a T-shirt that says, I'm alone. Talk to me. Interact with me. So it makes you accessible. Um, It also allows you to have your own impressions uh, of a place without them being filtered through someone else. Um, You're walking down with a friend or a partner and and you say, oh, isn't that beautiful? And they're like, yes, it is, or no, it's not. And now you're you're like, well, hmm, I didn't know if that fjord was beautiful or not. I thought it was, but my friend doesn't think it is, or or we both think it is, so it must be. So you're you're kind of uh, a uh, roving focus group in a way. Uh, and so for me, getting the, the best material is is usually um, traveling alone and having the best experience. Um, you know, in the Socrates Express, I did travel with my uh, daughter, who at the time was 13. Uh, and that was kind of eye-opening because I could sort of see the places through her eyes. And she kept me grounded from becoming too metaphysical. She just, you know, roll, roll her mm-hmm. eyes in the way a 13-year-old would whenever I'd make a joke or say something, you know, about some big philosophical idea. She's reminding me that, no, sometimes a bridge is just a bridge and a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. Um so that can be helpful, um, but overall, the ideal number for a travel group is one. The next question I wanted to ask is, you mentioned before you've been a pescatarian for 20 or 25 years. When you're traveling, I know I like to try local cuisines. I used to be vegetarian as well um, and always struggled when I was traveling because I was searching for the vegetarian options. How do you make those trade-offs between staying pescatarian and true to your roots versus experiencing local cuisine? So I became a pescatarian um, 25 years ago when I was living in India, and I had a bad experience with meat, which I, I can't mm. talk about because <clears throat> it's triggering. Um, but uh, in India, you know, the whole orientation is different. You're either vegetarian or non-vegetarian. So the vegetarians are the normal people, essentially. If you're a meat eater, you're non-veg, as they say. Um, So it's a different orientation. I realized there's always a vegetarian option in India. Always. Fly Air India, take the train, whatever, go to a restaurant. There's always, almost always a vegetarian option because that's the the default. Um, And then I added fish because I realized I would not sustain it because I just need my sushi and my fish. And so this is where I drew the lines and... Uh, it's not really for ethical reasons. There's an ethical benefit. There's a health benefit, but mainly it's because I'm an indecisive person. And when I go to a restaurant, uh, now it's easy. There's always a vegetarian and or a fish or seafood option. And I just eliminate the others. And, um, you know, I've traveled to places where it's difficult or considered weird. Um, you know, in Afghanistan, I was there for a while and I was staying at a house with some other journalists. The cook just thought I was cheap. Eric doesn't want to eat meat. Um, I went to Turkey and explained I didn't meat, eat meat. And this carpet salesman said, you're missing half the world. He was just dis- dismayed by it. 
I did have a conundrum when I was doing a story about whalers in whaling in northern Japan and Hokkaido. And the fisherman was this salty guy who clearly wasn't going to give me the interview until I tried his whale soup. Um, And um, I had to think it lives in the water, but it's a mammal. So ultimately, I tried the soup and it was not very good. But um, yes, there are there are some conundrums out there. But, uh, you know, all travel is working with constraints. And so if you're vegetarian or you have celiac disease or you're in a wheelchair, whatever it is, um, you're then just traveling with a different set of constraints from someone else. It makes me think back to what we were saying before of removing this these expectations of travel, of if I go to this place, I'm meant to eat this or I'm meant to visit this museum. If you're focusing in on, I want to experience this version of myself, it doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair or you're a vegetarian because you're living within your own constraints of how do you want your experience to be. Right. And the person who's, you know, physically fit and can eat anything has constraints too, but they're inside their head and we can't see them. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you talked about expectations. Um, I would say, yeah, eliminate expectations when it comes to travel and when it comes to life. I mean, that's another one of the takeaways from, um, well, the geography of bliss, but also a lifetime of travel and thinking about happiness is that ha- expectations are really the great enemy of happiness, yeah. that um, the happiest people and places are ones where people don't have expectations. Now, that's not the same as having low expectations. Having low expectations is just the inverse of having high expectations. You still have decided the outcome. This is going to be awful as opposed to this is going to be terrific. But going to an experience or place with no expectations is, I think, the ideal state of mind. Um, you, You still do things and you try things, um, but you don't, you're not wedded to outcomes and that applies to work life. It applies to relationships. It applies, certainly it applies to travel. It's a very Buddhist way of living. Um, you know, this unattachment. It, it is. Um, but people, especially Americans, when I mention this about no expectations, they often will bristle saying, so you shouldn't try. Um, so you just, you just don't do anything. I'm like, no, you, um, you mentioned Buddhism. I'll quote from a Hindu book, the Bhagavad Gita, the holy poem, where um, you know Lord Krishna is saying to Arjun, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here: put 100% effort into what you do, 100%, but have 0% invested in the results. Yes, and that's extremely difficult. But I do think that is, in in just a few words, there the recipe for a happy life. Completely, completely agree on that one. I want to also ask you about this in this last area of the choices of travel, living elsewhere versus visiting elsewhere. And what does it give you? I'm going to throw it right back at you. You lived in Singapore for four years. And how is that different from visiting for four days or four weeks? Well, it's it's definitely at a base level. uh, You're looking at different things. Even if you're saying, I want, I don't care about visiting all the tourist areas, you might sit down and observe and see, I want to see how people walk around. What do they eat? What do they? How do they interact? The lessons that I took away living in Singapore was a lot more about way of life. I would have never truly understood governance without living in Singapore. You can read about something and you can, you know, see in real life, how do people live? But I came into Singapore as a 
big American, thinking about freedom and thinking about how do we define human rights. And I was using that lens on Singapore. And I think if I was visiting it, I would have, one, maybe not even thought about that, but also I would have um, not truly understood. Because four years later, I think I have a perspective on what are forms of governance that I want to live under. But fundamentally, my understanding of freedom has changed. I lived in cities when I was in the U.S. And we have a ton of freedom in the U.S., of course. But was I free as a woman to walk alone at 3 a.m. feeling safe? Not entirely. In Singapore, I was. it's much more regulated. The government has a hand in everything. But I was free to feel safe. Right. So your 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 worldview was challenged, um, which is good. And um ideally you're challenging their worldview as well. Yeah. While you're there. And because you're experiencing daily life, you're applying for maybe a driver's license or you're having interactions with the government, you're doing all the boring stuff that travelers don't do when you live in a place. Right. And uh and, and that's helpful. Um you know, there there's a a expression uh or a little story about um you know the expat who moves to say tokyo and after two weeks living there they they don't know anything about the place but after two years they've got it all figured out tokyo japan after 20 years they don't know anything about the place <laughs> so i mean you go through this cycle of i'm so confused to then you think you okay this is how things are done here um but you have to keep revising that. And the one uh, danger of staying in a place too long, I would say, is that you don't you don't see things with, with mm. fresh eyes. Um, to me, like the people I look for as interpreters, cultural interpreters when I go to a place, are two kinds of people. One is uh, the local person who has lived outside of, let's use Iceland as an example, an Icelander who's lived in Boston for nine or ten years and returned to Iceland. They then can see their little fishbowl, uh, their culture clearly, and now have some reference point and can explain it to me, an American. Um, the other is the expat. Um, like you, you know, if you were still in Singapore I, and I was going to Singapore, I'd seek you out and say, "You've been here four years, Lindsay. Tell me what's going on here." And now someone else might say, "Well, why are you talking to Lindsay? She's not Singaporean. Talk to a Singaporean." Yes, but Lindsay has that outsider's perspective, but she's enough of an insider having been here for four years that she can interpret it for me. So there's value to being what I call an insider-outsider. Immigrants experience this, right? This is why I think immigrants uh, proportionally have are, are more likely to be a genius, a creative genius. Um, you know, something like 25% of all uh Nobel Prizes awarding to Amer awarded to Americans are awarded to people born outside the U.S. I mean, there there are numbers showing that immigrants are more creative, and I think one of those reasons is they are insider outsiders. They they have a hand a foot in in two different worlds, and that's hugely beneficial. This is one of the things I love about places like New York. You can experience so much of these different types of communities without because it is true that travel can be inaccessible it can be expensive or you don't have the time we don't we can't all there could be off. a global pandemic who there knows could be a global <laughs> pandemic yeah, there's crazy. a lot of reasons why we can't travel but right. there's also and it's not just new york there's you know many places that increasingly with immigration are filled with these different types of communities 
I live just outside of Washington, D.C. I have an Iranian, for Iranian-born friend, uh, Nazila, who you know probably experiences Washington differently because he's somewhat tapped into the per Iranian American community here. So she has that world. Um, and I uh, live in a place called Silver Spring, Maryland, and it's a there's a huge Ethiopian diaspora here. Um, and one of the benefits is that. Coffee was, according to legend, first discovered the coffee bean in Ethiopia. And Ethiopians love coffee, so there are a huge number of coffee shops. Um, but they're also just, you can somewhat experience uh, Ethiopia without going there just by being in this diaspora community. Um, so, yes, that that is a benefit. Um, of course, those Ethiopians living here become Americanized, so you're getting somewhat of a diluted version um, nothing quite beats going to the mothership, I think. Definitely. How did you decide after this lifetime of travel to build your base in Maryland? You know, at, uh, Lindsay, I'll be honest. At this point in my life, I am happy to have a hub and spoke system, you know, and I, you need a hub. And and I still travel uh, a lot. Um, you know, I'm going, uh, resuming travel. I'm, you know, I'm, going to Jordan next month and and I'm in October I'll be in uh, Bhutan and Thailand and India and Indonesia um but then I'm happy to come back and sit still for 3 or 4 months and it's a cliche but it's true the best part of travel one of the best parts is coming home um not just yes to see family and friends I get that but also that you appreciate what you've left behind and for me, and maybe you've experienced this after being abroad for four years or longer, is when you come back to the U.S., you see the U.S. more clearly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember going to a Whole Foods for the first time in my life. I was living in India at the time where, I mean, we couldn't get cheese or wine. I mean, basic th basic things like wine and cheese, you know. The staples of life were unavailable. Yes. But I keep, walked into a Whole Foods and I walked into the bread section and I just like froze. Like, oh my God, this is like obscene. There's so many choices of bread. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't, now I walk into Whole Foods, I don't think twice about it. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, like darn, they're out of these seven grain, you know, whole wheat panini bread that I must have, you know, so... So that freshness wears off, but it can be very insightful and very uh, liberating to sort of see your own home uh, through fresh eyes. And you get that through traveling and living abroad. Mm -hmm, definitely. You are turning uh, your first book, The Geography of Bliss, which shared your journey across um, the world to find the happiness, the happiest places in the world, or at least how they define happiness into a TV show. Can you share a little bit more about the project and what you're hoping it will inspire? Right. So uh, it will be a six-part docu-series, a term I did not know until I entered TV world. A docu-series is a documentary-style series, um, and it will be starring, featuring Rain Wilson, who most people know as Dwight from The Office, so he's done a lot more than that. And um, I'm glad it's in his hands because he, like me, and he's been open about this, has suffered from depression in his life, even though he's the funny guy from The Office, the TV show. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's got that sense of wanderlust. And he will be, in a way, recreating my book, but adding some different destinations. But I just hope it reaches a lot of people who you know, might then say, hey, I'll pick up this book by this guy or 
just it will inspire them to travel and to see the world in a different way. Um, so, I'll, you know, I can't lie. It's pretty exciting. Um, I'm getting a crash course in what Hollywood is like, um, good, bad, and ugly, but it's all there. And it should be out um, sometime uh, early next year. That is so exciting. I cannot yeah. wait to watch. And it actually makes me think about this cultural interpreter that you mentioned before. I, TV can really be beautiful for that. You know, you're, you have that bridge. Right. And, and the sort of gold standard, may he rest in peace, is Anthony Bourdain. Um, and, you know, when people, this will be on NBC Peacock, but whether it's on Netflix or wherever, you know, every travel show, the unspoken person or metric in the room is this is going to be the new the new Bourdain and he was one of a kind um but I do think it shows you that there is a appetite for intelligent travel television and I hope Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss as this will be called will will um feed that appetite I really do amazing let's end on three quick fire questions if that's oh boy <laughs> Oh All right. If someone is trying to decide where they want to travel to next, what should they do? Spin the globe, point your finger. As long as it doesn't land in a body of water, um, go there. Just go random. Go. Next. <laughs> what should they do when they get there? How should they plan their trip? They should... Emerge slowly from the hotel and start to explore in concentric circles. Expand out, but get to know the one square block around your hotel really, really well before you go any further. I love that. And who should they talk to before they go? Before they go. Not many people. Uh, by talking on extended to reading and what I do, read history of the place um, definitely the history. Um, don't read, this is going to sound funny coming from a travel writer. Don't read contemporary travel logs and travel <laughs> accounts of the place because it will color your, your view of it. Like, Oh, Eric Weiner thought the rotten shark mm. was disgusting. I quite like it. You know? So just, uh, don't, don't talk to anyone. Don't read. I mean, maybe get a few suggestions, but, um, don't let people start to tell you, that, oh, you'll love this, you'll hate this, you know, work off a loose list, talk to very few people before traveling. And lastly, the question for you, what was your favorite experience of meeting someone when you were traveling? I, I have to go back to my friend Karma Ora um, in Bhutan. Um, it, it really was an eye-open experience meeting him and uh, I was able, because I was so far away and so out of my element, you know, I was able to open up to him. And, and this is one of the benefits of travel is you can just unload on strangers 10,000 miles away, you know. And uh, we, we talked about gross national happiness. We talked about personal happiness. And I, you know, confided in him that I'd been having you know, what I thought was heart attacks on a regular basis. They were not, they were panic attacks. Um, and, and he gave me some, some advice about how to, how to reorient myself. And, um, and he's on my mind because I'm going to see him again for the first time in like a decade. Um, when I'm in Bhutan wow. in October 
And um, yeah, he is, he's, he and what he has said has, has stayed with me. Um, but it doesn't have to be karma in Bhutan. It can be Joe, the taxi driver in Pittsburgh. You know, it, it can be anything. And if we sat here for, you know, another 20 minutes, I'd probably come up with 20 more names. But that's the one, karma is the one that came to mind. Thank you so much for talking with me about this. We talked about how do you make decisions in travel, but it always comes back to how do you want to live your life? I've been really surprised throughout each of these conversations I've been having with people. Every decision comes down to your own values. What do you care about? Who do you want to be? And so this is, you know, another example. Yeah, it's just one big decision to make and a lot of little ways of manifesting it and travels travels one of them so i really enjoyed this Lindsay, and and i think um i'm usually an indecisive person but uh i'm going to decide right now that your podcast is awesome so there boom oh thank you so much that was travel writer and author eric weiner his best-selling book the geography of bliss is being turned into a docuseries hosted by rain wilson and will be available for streaming next year on nbc peacock I wanted to thank Eric personally as well, because his advice of taking time for stillness really changed how I experienced my Camino over the last few weeks. It's hard to believe, but that's a wrap on season one of Figuring It Out. We spoke with experts about how understanding our brains can help us make better decisions and heard the stories of those looking to apply those principles into their own lives. I hope you got as much out of this as I did along the way. Thank you so much for being a loyal listener for the first season of Figuring It Out. If you haven't yet, share your favorite episode with a friend and let us know what you want to hear about next. We'll be continuing to build our community on Instagram at figuringitout.show so that we can bring you the latest research and stories on making decisions for a more fulfilling and extraordinary life. Until then, I'm Lindsay Strauss. Thank you so much for listening.